Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 308, recorded July 6th, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 121. Security Now is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by Carbonite. Backing up the files on your PC or Mac is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com. Offer code SECURITYNOW. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security, your privacy online. And who better to do that than a man who's been covering this story since it all began, back with the earliest days of spyware. In fact, he coined the term spyware, wrote the first anti-spyware program and has been helping us with security ever since mr steve gibson of grc hey leo hey steve how are you great we got another great episode number 308 and it's a q a it's our 121st q a wow your questions of, and uh, steve's answers yeah lots of interesting news uh a potpourri a potpourri of of goodies and uh and then some we have, there's that it's not an overload as we've had the last couple Q and A so we got about eight questions uh, interesting uh, ideas and thoughts from listeners and we even end it with the philosophical question of the week. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, you know we uh, just covered uh, the big uh, Facebook announcement right before we uh, went on the air mm-hmm. this morning, and uh, one of the things I noted at least on the Macintosh I haven't checked it on Windows yet is that it does install itself using Java a Java mm-hmm. archive. So. Uh, one of the things I'd like to ask you about in a second is uh, is how you feel how you feel about that, <laughs> given the uh, security uh, exploits uh, uh, that have it's been riddled with in the last. Well, that's a problem, and then the other problem is that it is actually Skype in a box, and so it's you know what Facebook is using is is essentially repackaged Skype technology, and as we know, Microsoft bought Skype recently for eight and a half billion dollars, and uh, what popped up on the radar this week is the fact that Microsoft just acquired a patent, which they filed for a couple years ago, about how to surreptitiously eavesdrop on a peer-to-peer VOIP system. We will talk about that in great detail. (laughs) Oh, boy. In just a moment. Before we do, though, let me talk a little bit about backing up your data. Maybe a good good time now to think about backup. It's always a good time to think about backup. And when I think about backup, I remember my good friend Peter Krogh, who uh, is a photographer, very accomplished, but also an expert on something he calls DAMN. Digital Asset Management. If you're a photographer with thousands of images, many of them 20 or more megabytes in size, uh, where to put them, how to arrange them, and most importantly, how to back them up becomes very important. Peter's formulated a backup strategy that I think is rock solid that I recommend and use myself. He calls it 3-2-1 backup, so it's easy to remember. 
three copies of all your data. That means the original plus two backups. That's important. I think a lot of people delete when they back up a file, they delete the original saying, well, it's backed up. If you have one copy, it's not a backup. You need <laughs> it just seems obvious, but I but I talk to people all the time and said, Oh no, I backed it up, so I've deleted it. No, that means now you only have one copy. You need three copies of everything, the original plus two backups. You also need to have it, and this is an interesting insight, and I think he's right, on two different forms of media. Uh, don't rely all on DVDs or USB keys or external drives of the Internet. Two forms of media uh, for a variety of reasons. I won't go into great depth on that, but I think it, it, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. And finally, and this is absolutely critical, one is off-site. Three copies, two kinds of media, one off-site copy. Because if the worst happens, you've got it all backed up sitting right next to your computer or maybe on a shelf in your office, as I do, and I've got my backups, I'm safe, I've got three copies right here, and the house burns down, what happens? You lost everything. You lost everything. So make a copy outside the house. Now, Steve makes DVD copies and mails them to his mom. That's one way to do it. Carbonite, to me, is a better and easier way it's storing it in the cloud. In fact, as soon as you install Carbonite, it, it starts, as long as you're online, it starts backing up. It trickles. Now, this is important, and I think people in security now will understand this. Carbonite is very polite. It doesn't want to use up your CPU cycles, and it really doesn't want to use up your bandwidth. So it trickles your data up without impeding your bandwidth. In fact, as soon as it sees you need the computer or the bandwidth, it'll slow down or go to zero. But it's slowly backing up. Now, that first backup often can take a few weeks because it depends on how much data you've got. But once your backup set is done, then keeping it up to date is very, very fast, very easy, and it's happening all the time. Not once a day, not once a week, not once a month, all, not when you remember it, all the time. That's what I like about it. And it's, of course, encrypted 128-bit SSL, so you don't have to worry about using an open Wi-Fi access spot. Your data is safe. And you can further encrypt it using P. Or Pi, you can encrypt before you send it up. That means you and only you have the keys. Uh, Carbonite supports that, builds it in, and that's important too. So you have total privacy, total safety, automatic backup. And here's the best part. Unlimited backup for your internal drive. You can't stack up a bunch of external drives or back up your old network. But that's there's a Carbonite Pro for that if you want that. But for the consumer version, unlimited backup for your internal drive, $59 a year. So here's what I want you to do. Go to Carbonite.com. Try it free for two weeks. And one of the reasons they do that free trial is that's your initial backup. So that's built in, kind of free. Use the offer code security now. It'll help Steve and me out. And then if you decide to buy, use security now again, and they'll give you 14 months of the price of 12. Carbonite. you got to back it up to get it back. So do it right with Carbonite. All right, Steve, let's get to, uh, I guess we, uh, we always like to start with uh, security updates. Anything yes, and we've had a very quiet week this week. Not much going on. Of course, next Tuesday will be the second Tuesday of the month since we had, uh, what, January, well, the, the 4th of July, of course, was last Monday. So uh, the 5th is Tuesday. So I expect we'll have, some, we'll have some news. Yes, we'll have some news next Tuesday, but nothing this Tuesday. Um, an interesting note. Uh, was picked up by uh, but someone who noted that a, a security company, Secure Envoy, was applauding the LulzSec folks, which really? I thought was sort of interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, a, a, a NetSecurity.org had a blog posting that said, in an, inis, inis, un, 
in an unexpected move for a security company, Secure Envoy today said that cyber break-ins and advanced malware incidents, such as the recent DDoS attack by LulzSec, should actually be welcomed and their initiators applauded. Explaining this sentiment, Andy Kemshall, CTO and co-founder of Secure Envoy, said, I firmly believe that the media attention lulls sex, DDoS attacks, and other break-ins have recently received is deserving. It's thanks to these guys who are exposing the blasé attitudes of government and business without any personal financial gain that will make a difference in the long term to the security being put in place to protect our own personal data. Well, that's and interesting because that's, that's a sec- effectively what LulzSec and these other gray hat hackers use as an excuse, people like Adrian Lamo, for what they do. Right. They say it strengthens security. We're, doing it, we're on the side of good, not evil. And so they're right. Um, I mean, I'm not – we can't condone this, the, the, you know, the breaking of the laws, which unfortunately – are the means by which security gets strengthened, but it really is only a consequence of these sorts of breaches that that companies take action. It must be as a consequence of this recent flurry that really came to high profile. I mean, I was I was seeing conversations about these internet web break-ins on non-tech, you know. Uh, channels of, of of information that wouldn't normally be covering it because it really did it really did come to the attention of of the press and certainly to the attention of other companies who as i've said many times you know their ceos must be asking their cios tell me this isn't possible tell me our passwords are encrypted tell me all of our data is encrypted, and it's very often the case that, that the, the chief information officer would say, uh, well, no, that's on our list of Whoops. things that we'd like to get to, but, you know, you keep us too busy dotting our I's. This is why you applauded uh, Fire Sheep. Yes, yes, and we did see a, an absolute reaction to Fire Sheep. It got cited, and it was downloaded, a, you know, a million-plus times, and now... Companies like Facebook are enforcing persistent HTTPS clearly as a consequence. I mean, absolutely. There's no, you know, there was not any coincidence that 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 got added after FireSheep after FireSheep did. So, so you know, and here's Sony that's been has become a laughing stock in terms of the number of attacks, and was we'll see a little bit later on in this podcast. They got another one uh, yesterday. So. Um, I, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that the only thing that moves companies to make themselves more secure is is the this kind of high profile breach and attack and and embarrassment. And we know that there are going to be lawsuits that will follow these things that you know won't be on our radar as much as the technology that that you know foretends the the future suit. But that's happening too. So, um. I, I I don't know that I would say I think it's great, but it is the way the world works. The reason Microsoft has gotten as good as they have about security is not because they wanted to. It's because they had no choice because Windows was, had become a laughing stock. It was a catastrophe from a security standpoint. And Microsoft, though it took a long time and was very slow, they finally did step up. They would not have. And we would have a much less secure 
OS today were it not for the fact that there were hackers poking at Windows for so long and so successfully that Microsoft begrudgingly got around to it. Again, all of this feels to me like frontier land. I mean, we're just in, in, in a decade from now, we're going to have to come up with a new name for the podcast, Leo. And well, maybe 15 years and, uh, you know, switch topics, technology today or, or something, because these problems are going to get themselves solved. But right now, well, you know, we've got a real place. Yep. Um, this, I'm also, glad you're going to cover this Dropbox thing. Yeah. Because I didn't, you know, I saw it and I didn't know what to make of it. So I'm curious what you say, because I use Dropbox like crazy. I know you do. And in fact, I got email from them because you and I were using it to um, to transfer podcast uh, audio. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So in the wake of the problems, the security problems that they had, remember that we've talked about several things, The, the revelation that 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 they were able to decrypt the data, which they had not made clear before. And then they had the four day or four hours, rather, excuse me, four hours during which time their passwords were, were not required to log into Dropbox accounts. So anybody could log in who wanted to. They did a revamp of their terms of service and, and several things caught my eye. Uh, first of all, the letter that I received, the email that I received, as all Dropbox users would have, said, Hi, Steve, we want to let you know that we've made some changes to our Dropbox terms of service, privacy policy and security overviews. We did this to make our policies easier to read and understand. And I have to agree, they are. Um, and better reflect product improvements we've made to Dropbox. Please read about these changes in our blog post and read the docs themselves. So I, I didn't this, read them. I just thought I'd let you read them and tell me yep, about it. That's what I'm here for. And I pulled um, interesting bits out of the re- otherwise, you know, legal, legalese boilerplate, although they've really made it much more clear. So under security overview, they said, quote, like most online services, we have a small number of employees who must be able to access user data for the reasons stated in our privacy policy, which I'll discuss separately in a second. And then they say, e.g., when legally required to do so. So that's a clear acknowledgement that if they were served with a, a, um, you know, a court order requiring that a given user's data be turned over to some three-letter initial organization that works for the government, they would do so. Then they say, as set forth in our privacy policy, well, I'm, okay, I, I, I should say they, they would and can do so. So they're making that clear. As set forth in our privacy policy and in compliance with the United States law, Dropbox cooperates with United States law enforcement when it receives valid legal process, which may require Dropbox to provide the contents of your private Dropbox. In these cases, Dropbox will remove Dropbox's encryption from the files before providing them to law enforcement. So, very clear there for those. Not people everybody who, has to do that, by the way. I mean, that's that's something they've decided they want to do. I think that should be made clear. 
Wait, they've decided that they... They want to be able to provide the data to law enforcement. They could have a system. There are many companies that do where it's pre-ingress encryption, as we've talked about, pre-internet encryption. And they just say, yeah, well, we'd give you that information, but we don't have the keys. Well, and case in point is LastPass. Yeah. LastPass. Uh, or, or what I use instead of Dropbox for my private stuff, Walla, which yes. encrypts before it goes to the internet. They don't have the key. So they yes. could. That's not. There's no legal requirement that they have to be. Or is there? Ah, there actually is a reason they do this, and we'll be talking about that in a second. Oh, good. <laughs> it's really interesting too, and it's been hacked. Um, so, oh, even better. <laughs> <laughs> Drop. So they also say Dropbox applies encryption to your files after they have been uploaded. Oh, and separately, I should say that they do encrypt in transit. So they use standard SSL 256-bit encryption in transit. But when they receive it, it's back out of SSL in plain text. Then they encrypt it for storage. Dropbox, but, but not until they do something else, but I'll get to that in a second. Dropbox applies encryption to your files after they've been uploaded, and we manage the encryption keys. We manage, they say, the encryption keys. Users who wish to manage their own encryption keys can apply encryption before placing files in their Dropbox. Please note that if you encrypt files before uploading them, some features which we'll be discussing in a second, will not be available, such as creating public links. Doing so will also make it impossible for us to recover your data if you lose your encryption key. And, of course, that's the whole point. Um, so that was their security overview, the high po- highlights of that. Under their privacy policy, they said, regarding files, we collect and store the files you upload, download, or access with the Dropbox service. If you add a file to your Dropbox, get this, Leo, that has been previously uploaded by you or another user, we may associate all or a portion of the previous file with your account rather than storing a duplicate. So they're doing... To save space. Duplicate elimination, yes. Yeah. Okay, under data retention, we'll come back to that in a second. Under data retention, they said, we will retain your information for as long as your account is active or as needed to provide you services. If you wish to cancel your account or request that we no longer use your information to provide you services, you may delete your account. <laughs> but we may retain... And use your information as necessary to comply with our legal obligations. So, in other words, you could kill your account, delete your information, and they would have a copy which they would retain. At their... At their discretion, yes. Is that is this related to the uh, FBI demanding that ISPs retain two years' worth of data? Could very well be. Mm-hmm. They said, to resolve disputes and enforce our agreements, which they don't specify... Consistent with these requirements, we will try to delete your information quickly upon request. Please note, however, that there might be latency in deleting information from our servers and backed up versions might exist after deletion. 
in addition, they could have, you know, squirreled away copies that are that continue to exist persistently. In addition, we do not delete from our servers files that you have in common with other users. And then finally, under security of their privacy policy, they said we follow generally accepted standards to protect the information submitted to us during both transmission and once we receive it. No method of electronic transmission or storage is 100% secure. (laughs) Certainly not ours. However, therefore, we cannot guarantee its absolute security. So they've, you know, given themselves a final out there. Now, there, this got me really curious about what this dupe elimination system was. And I remember years ago talking to a company who was it was they were just at the at the startup um, internet backup kind of concept stage, and one of their clever ideas was to note that many of the files that users using a common OS would have on their system would be duplicates. You know, all these DLLs, well, they all came originally from Microsoft or from applications that we loaded. And for those that are of the same version, they're identical. So they were early on. Who's backing up their operating system or or binary application folders? I mean, isn't, isn't it data that we use this for? Well, largely, but their notion was due to the extremely high level of duplication. That is, yes, our, the, the binary folders are huge, but they're also full of stuff that absolutely will be identical. Of course. Across a huge population of users, which means you don't actually back them up. You back up, you know, a couple of them, and then you, and then when you see that the same user has the same file on their system, all you do is store a pointer to the master copy. And so you save all of this actual shuttling back and forth and, and storage. You simply do a hash. Well, that's what Dropbox does. Uh, you know, I, I, by the way, I'm going to point out the real uh, point of this is that uh, music and movies. Yes. And, uh, and uh, these are large files, and sure, they save space, but even more to the point, they also, this is, I think this is a response to the recording industry and the Motion Picture Association of America. And I don't know. It just makes me nervous. I don't, I, I'm going to, I'm going to use more Walla and less yeah. Dropbox. So, okay. So someone figured out what the client to the, 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 the Dropbox client API was. They reverse engineered it. And, if you look under Dropship on, under Wikipedia, you'll find a tool which was created by someone who reverse engineered this. What they realized was this was better than BitTorrent. So what happens is dro- the way Dropbox works is <laughs> in four meg blocks, an SHA-256 hash is made of the block. And that is sent to Dropbox to see if they already have it. And if they already have it, then the file is not transferred to Dropbox. Merely, your account is tagged as, as having this file too, and it instantly appears in all instances 
of your synchronized Dropbox folders. So, so what this does is it hugely, exactly as I was saying before, reduces the storage that, that Dropbox needs to maintain because any duplicate AVIs, any duplicate MP3s, any duplicate anything gets hashed and checked to see if it's already there, which means from a mass distribution standpoint, someone loads one copy into their Dropbox folder and then distributes the hash. And so Dropship consists of two, two files or, or two exes. The Dropship itself is a is a tool for injecting a file into your account using its reverse engineered from Dropbox description and then the second tool is called hash blocks which produces a description from a file that can be used by Dropship so everybody gets a copy of Dropship i and i want to send somebody a file or a huge audience or post it somewhere on the net People, um, we, we produce, using, using hash blocks, produce a description, which is the hash of these four meg blocks, send that, which is super small, to, you know, broadcast it or send it to a large audience. They all simply take that and, and, and put that into Dropship using that, the Dropship tool, which injects that into their account, and suddenly that big file appears in everyone's uh, Dropbox folder, so very clever. Yeah, although, I mean, um, you have the public folder capability, and since I guess, I guess this is better than you putting it there. Because yeah, it was just sort of done as a hack. It's a, I mean, it's it was a cool hack. By the way, Dropbox says they've disabled it. Yes, they. they uh, uh, and it wasn't done painlessly. This all occurred in March a few months ago, and they Dropbox immediately tried to shut them down. Uh, asked that they remove it. Generated some bogus uh, uh, DMCA takedown notices. Although, uh, you know, claiming that this code was a violation of the DMCA, although it it was open source, it was reverse engineered from their protocol. So essentially what they had was a weak technology for doing this. The problem is, as we know, no matter what they do on the client side, if they're going to continue to try to do this, and I'm sure they are, all they would have done would have, done, would have been to add some further layers of obfuscation. Any client, as we've often said, the protocol can be reverse engineered. So there's nothing to prevent someone from creating some software that that does mimic the normal operation of Dropbox. That is, normally the only way a user could generate the hash on their system would be to actually have the file and physically hash it and then have the the Dropbox client check to see if it's it's all if they already have a copy, which would save the the you know Dropbox the bandwidth and the user the time of uploading it, which is cool. But so what? What this approach does is this short circuits the process so that you don't actually ever have to have the file in order to have it appear um, in your own Dropbox. 
And that so essentially that's what this does. Chetpot so, in the uh, chat room asks an interesting question. Is it possible that there are hash collisions that you could uh, think you had a duplicate of a file and it was just a duplicate of the hash? Yeah, wouldn't that be disturbing? That wouldn't be because, good. Yeah, not good. Um, it's, Especially if it's a know, DLL or something. Yeah, with an SHA-256, we've got – I mean, that's a huge number of bits, and it has to be an exact match. The hash is very mature and well-designed, so it's incredibly unlikely that that there would be a collision. I don't know that they're also storing the size. I would – I bet if they're doing it right, they're storing the size also because that's a tiny bit of additional information – and to have the same size and a hash collision, that's just not going to happen. Mm. So, mm-hmm. so, so, but it's a great question because, because um, that, that's absolutely the case. A hash collision would confuse the system and you would download you, – you would upload your file and go, wow, that was quick. And then when you tried to download it, it would be a different file because the system would have thought – you were uploading one it already had, and when you downloaded it, you'd get the wrong one in the instance of this, uh, of this collision. But SHA-256 is so secure. I mean, we're relying on it for many other things much more important than you know, disambiguating Dropbox blocks. So uh, I think it's, in, in, I mean, it's a good theoretical issue, but in practice, not a problem. But okay. we do have a problem. Um, Microsoft has obtained a patent for specifically intercepting Skype conversations. This is their application 2011015309 called Legal Intercept. And in the, uh, in the um, abstract at the top of it, it said, I'm reading now from this, aspects of the subject matter described herein relate to to silently recording communications. In aspects, data associated with a request to establish a communication is modified to cause the communication to be established via a path that includes a recording agent. Modification may include, for example, adding, changing, and or deleting data within the data. The data, as modified, is then passed to a protocol entity, you know, this is all patent speak, that uses the data to establish a communication session. Because of the way in which the data has been modified, the protocol entity selects a path that includes the recording agent. The recording agent is then able to silently record the communication. And skipping down then to paragraph 28 of the details, it says, as mentioned previously, traditional techniques for silently recording telephone communication may not work correctly with VOIP and other network-based communication technology. As used hereafter, the term VOIP is used to refer to standard VOIP as well as any other form of packet-based communication that may be used to transmit audio over a wireless and or wired network. For example, VOIP may include audio messages transmitted via gaming systems, instant messaging protocols that transmit audio, Skype, 
and Skype-like applications meeting software, video conferencing software, and the like. And then separately cited in an article about this, Jeffrey Chester, who's the executive director for the Center of Digital Democracy, said, The technology aligns with Microsoft's broader goals. The company, quote, aims to incorporate tracking technologies for its Skype services as it aggressively expands its mobile advertising system across the world. Skype will likely soon have ad targeting and user profiling digit strings attached. This underscores the need for strong mobile and location privacy safeguards. So we've talked a number of times because there's there's been this grumblings uh, in the U.S. Congress about um, their response to our law enforcement's concern, which is certainly understandable, that they are no longer able to eavesdrop on an increasing percentage of Internet traffic. And so, as we know, there has been talk of legislation that would require services to allow a the service provider to respond to a law and to a law enforcement request for eavesdropping and decryption and specifically Skype had been immune to this because as you and I know Leo we have a point to point communication that is you know it's encrypt <coughs> Skype's encrypted um, and encryption technology is extremely good. Um, and But moreover, our data is going between my endpoint and your endpoint over an, an undecryptable connection. Well, Microsoft bought Skype and is now clearly in the process of adding this technology, which will break the encryption – and will bring will you know th- allowing essentially uh, technology for a by design man in the middle attack, which will cause our endpoints to at at their discretion to no longer establish a point to point connection, but to deliberately route the the data through a as they said silent recording entity, which would decrypt it. Um, and then make it available. I I should point out that it's possible that Microsoft's patenting this to to keep somebody else from doing it. Sometimes you uh, patent things defensively, so it may mean that merely that they want they know this technique exists, they know it's out there, and they they want to patent it to keep somebody else. I mean, somebody legally from doing it. Of course, by publishing it, they're making an illegal usage uh, even easier. Yeah, if you and don't care about patent infringement. And there, there really isn't a practical way for someone, for example, to do this to a Skype, to a Skype conversation. I mean, the, the way you get around, the way you solve this encrypted link problem is that you, you get an agent running pre-encryption at either end of the conversation. Right. So, you know, there is So you have to that. build it in. It's not something that exists now. You have to build it into Skype. Yes, it's very clear that it doesn't exist now and that when and that Microsoft will be giving us newer and better versions of Skype in the future, Leo. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Is this, okay. you think, a response to the, uh, uh, that legislation that kind of requires this? Uh, I think that's exactly what this is. I think if Microsoft 
decided we're going to buy Skype for two for eight point five billion dollars, um, and if legislation does get passed, and it Microsoft hasn't may been have passed any, yet, right? My, it does has, hasn't been written yet. I oh, mean, okay. there's been a, a serious back pressure against law enforcement wanting this, and so I mean, it really raises concerns. Uh, about you know abuse that we do see happening when law enforcement gets technology that they don't know how to handle correctly. So, um, so it, it makes total sense to me. Microsoft's going to spend eight and a half billion dollars on this technology. They're not going to risk having legislation passed that would outlaw that technology, which is exactly my concern that I've discussed with my doing a VPN because. In the same way that Microsoft might be compelled to put a back door in, so could everybody else who's trying to sell something commercial that is, you know, really robustly secure, as Skype up till now has been. So, oh, well. you know, this is Microsoft saying, well, we're going to offer Skype, but we're going to do it so that we can eavesdrop if we have to. Okay, now here is this is sanity check time, Leo. Uh, the URL is is my credit card stolen dot com <laughs> and let me ask do you enter oh, your credit card number oh just look at this you look at this website and and it, this is basically an iq test this is a test that many people who don't listen to security now might fail i hope that no listener of this podcast would fail this test. Is my credit card stolen? But, but Steve, it says verified secure right on the front page. Uh, isn't that comforting? Yes. <laughs> so we've seen. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. We've seen. We've seen. You know. Has my password been hacked? Has my email been, been stolen? Has Sony been hacked? I mean, this is the new Vogue style of website so now we have is my credit card stolen.com and it asks you put in your credit card number put in your name put in your expiration i mean i'm looking at this thing <laughs> there's no way i'm putting this stuff in so leo go ahead and click the button without putting anything in all right let me see so check right now okay just don't put anything Don't in. worry. Your credit card details weren't transmitted when you hit the submit button. But don't trust this claim without question. Find a technically inclined friend to verify it for you. After all, you've already been tricked once. Oh, good. So it's a good guy. It is a good guy. I, before I clicked the button, I got the page source, and I read the oh. source code for the page. And it's actually been very well designed. This is the, great. Isn't that great? Oh, good so, for them. Oh, that scared me for a moment. Oh, my, it ought to scare everyone. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, let's just see if, my, if this information is part of some public database. It's like, oh, my goodness. And it's not SSL. It's not secure. I mean, there's nothing about this. It says, oh, yes, the, please put your credit card information in here. So I just love that. It is my credit card stolen dot com. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. I'm going to put this out on my uh, Twitter and see how many people go to it. Oh, goodness. <laughs> be great if they were collecting statistics. They, they aren't. They're doing nothing evil right. with it. And all, all, all the submit does. Oh, this is from the Anti-Fishing Working Group. These people are great, actually. I, I know yes. them very well. It's yep. a great website that has, uh, they keep it, actually a wonderful database of, of uh, phishing emails on here. Um, so this is, that. yeah, they're good. They're good. Wow, yeah. this is great. 
<laughs> How funny. <laughs> is my credit card stolen.com. Hmm. Oh, my God. Well, it is now. Idiot. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they should do. Put up a big sign. It is now. Oh, gosh. Um, so, uh, in under attacks and breaches, we do have, as I mentioned earlier, Sony got hacked yet again. This was the Sony Music Ireland website that was hacked. And three very distressing to music lovers news stories, bogus news stories were posted on their homepage. And I don't follow current musicians and or and bands in Ireland closely enough to be disturbed by these or even to have remembered but they 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 went to great ex- extremes to say oh no no these people are not dead you know these people did you know these these groups are not disbanded so i guess it it caused some uproar um as it was clearly designed to um so has Sony been hacked this week.com? Yes, once again. Yeah, it was just on 7 5, <laughs> on July 5th. How many is uh, this now? Oh, good. 25? Is it, there, there, there's a summary, and uh, is it 25 or 27? I don't, I don't remember. Has Sony been ha- hacked? I, I'm, I'm entering it in. It was 20 the last time I checked, so. Yeah, has Sony has been hacked Sony this week.com? Being hacked.com. This week. This week. com. All right, and the answer is uh, not surprising. Yes, and uh, let's just see here uh, how many hacks there have been. Um, latest hack was July fifth. Yep. Sony's hack history going. Uh, you know what? They don't even count. They've lost count. <laughs> I thought there was a count on that first page. There was, and I think they stopped. But this looks oh. like the twenty-first hack. Okay. There was. They no longer have it an but account. It's like Sony did. With, Sony was joined by uh, a rather high-profile company that was embarrassingly hacked. Apple. Yeah. Apple's. Yeah. Apple's business intelligence site was hacked by the group that calls themselves Anonymous, and in order to prove that they had hacked that Apple site, um, they tweeted a link to a paste bin page where usernames and passwords, which had been taken from an SQL database there, were posted. Apparently there was an, 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 a, a SQL weakness of some sort, and so Apple's business intelligence site, which was then taken down immediately in order to figure out what was going on and, and solve the problem, got hacked. And, and speaking of this, we, we should follow up a little bit on your real-time news from last week, Leo. Yes, because we uh, we were hacked, um, and uh, let me just see if the what the latest uh, s- story is on this, because um, uh, we did get some updates uh, from our um, uh, sysops. Uh, As I remember, someone changed a few lines in jQuery, right. the jQuery library, the JavaScript, the very popular JavaScript query library. We have three uh, servers uh, that provide live.twit.tv, and one of the three jQueries was modified. Um, it's my understanding that it was through an old uh, install of WordPress that was sitting on one of the servers and hadn't been updated in some time. WordPress is really notorious for having lots of flaws in it. Um, we have, of course, removed that in, uh, instance uh, completely. 
uh, because it was an old blog we haven't kept up. It was for a show we did years ago. Actually, this is a really great tutorial in in the way somebody bad gets into a system is some software that you were using that you, you know, you switched away from, but it it stayed there and accessible online. And, the good uh, news you know, is that we had other checks in place that kept the hack from installing. It was intended to install a rootkit on uh, visitors to our site, but the other checks we had in place kept it from doing that. Mm. So it was a modification in the jQuery library. Uh, people who saw that pop up from Chrome and other spots, other places, um, antivirus software and so forth. Which is very cool. Saw that line, but what did not happen... I'm told, uh, and Bear is really good, is that uh, no no malware was, in fact, put on anybody's um, system because uh, of other uh, security Safe software. Safeguards that running. you guys have, yeah. 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 Good. So really what happened is that a file got, essentially got corrupted. Yep. With no other uh, damage done. Yep. So um, following up on last week's podcast about identity, um, a, a friend sent me a link to a... A Google initiative where Google has produced a kit which they would encourage other websites to use. It's free, which would allow visitors to log into those websites using their logins from other sites. This is the OAuth technology that we did a podcast on. It was episode 266, Security Now, episode 266, if anyone's curious. And I did refer to that also last week. But then I found something even more extensive. Uh, it's called Hybrid Auth, H-Y-B-R-I-D-A-U-T-H. It's at SourceForge, so hybridauth.sourceforge.net. And this is, again, another open source project. It's a PHP package which is exactly this, but even more comprehensive. Using this, any site which already had PGP support at their server side could could allow users to, first of all, create an account on that site if they wanted to, or use any of their existing accounts at Twitter, MySpace, all of the Google assets, so Gmail, Orkut, YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, Facebook, Tumblr, Friendster, OpenID, Foursquare, LinkedIn, Yahoo, Goala, um, Vimeo, Windows Live, and PayPal. So, I mean, this, this occurs to me as a really, this is a great direction for for sites to be going in. I'm glad Google is doing this, and I'm really glad that this hybrid auth project exists. So, so just to be clear, what this means is, I know how many times have we surfing around the net gone somewhere, and in order to do anything, we have to create an account, which is really annoying. If if it's just to post, you know, to a comment on a blog, I mean, I'm sure there are many few comments on blogs. For sites that require you to create an account before you can you can do that, um, and in fact, statistics are now being taken of the relative rate of account creation um, 
or or like for example doing the things that you would be able to do if you create an account versus losing people who don't or giving them this choice to authenticate themselves through a different site and then get credentials back from that site and the the statistics show a i mean exactly what you'd expect users are delighted to use their existing Google authentication or their Facebook authentication in order to identify themselves securely to some random, obscure third-party site that wants to know who they are. But, you know, currently the, the, the existing model is requiring that you go through all of the nightmare and annoyance of creating an account. Just not necessary. So, at hybridauth.sourceforge.net is a link to the home of this project, hauth.sx33.net. So I went there because I wanted to experiment with this. And he has like a, a sample how this would look. And there's like create your account on the left or log on to this site using any of those logons on the other sites. So I clicked Google. And I was redirected to a secure HTTPS Google.com sign-in page, which I, I see all the time. And I verified the credentials and everything looked right. You know, I got a big green, you know, EV certificate verification. And it was, and, and, and in fact, face, uh, um, LastPass quickly filled in my information for me. So all I had to do was to kind of like make sure this is what I want to do. And... And on the page, it said hauth.sx33.net is asking for some information from your Google account to see and approve the request sign in. So I signed in, and then I got to – it took me to accounts.google.com, and actually my favorite certificate patrol add-on for Firefox popped up. Because I had never used – because Google has a star.google.com certificate where they they got like sites and docs and accounts and, you know, anything.google.com. So they have one certificate that that handles all that. But Certificate Patrol notifies me of any different instance of its use that it hasn't seen before. So I had not yet had an occasion to go to accounts.google.com. This brought me there. And where I was still, so I was at Google, and it showed me hauth.sx33.net is asking for some information from your Google account. And then it, it showed me the account name, you know, my account name at Google. And then it, and then it enumerated what information was being requested. The, my email address with my name and my email account, the, my language, English, and my Google contacts. And then I had the, cho- the choice of saying allow or no thanks and also to remember this approval for the future. And when I said allow, I was then redirected back to that original site that just for the sake of this demo showed me a breakdown in detail of exactly what it was they had received from Google. So – um, this is tr- this is tremendous. This is what we need to have happen for all of those sites that want to d- that want some authentication of their users, but 
that are currently losing people because of this, you know, the, the, the annoyance of having to create an account. This solves the problem using OAuth, whose initial security problems that we discussed in episode 266 have since been fixed by OAuth Wrap, which is the sort of the follow-on successor to it. Um, and I just hope we see this more and more. If, if my site had any purpose for creating accounts and logging people in, I'd, I would do this in a heartbeat because, I mean, just if for no other reason than to encourage it. This is a, a, a slick, simple way of beginning to add, um, you know, really useful cross-site authentication, uh, and it's robust from a secure standpoint. Bravo to standards. And I got from Certificate Patrol... Uh, speaking of them, my most scary warning yet, and it was wonderful. Um, and it was when I went to uh, GitHub. I don't remember what took me to GitHub, but something preparing for the podcast today did. And so Certificate Patrol popped up, and it said, Certificate Exchanged, reason to worry, exclamation point, at GitHub.com. Yeah. So, and then in, in the details, it said, warning, this certificate wasn't due yet. But it's like, okay, well, we've had that before. It said, maybe there are other reasons why it needed to be exchanged, though. Then it said, alert, host name has changed. Take a look if that's okay. And then it said, caution, and here's the big one, certificate authority has changed. I just, I love that's this great. add-on. So then it shows me the old certificate, which was star.github.com. The new certificate was issued for just github.com. So for whatever reason, they just decided not to do a wildcard certificate. They just did a regular certificate. So that, that was the name being changing part. But then I looked down, and it's like, oh, the old certificate was issued from... GoDaddy Secure Certificate Authority. The new certificate was issued by my new favorite, DigiCert. Yeah. And that's where I'm going, too, because they're, they, you know, they provide all the same services. We'll remember that that's what Facebook is using. And so, and it's DigiCert High Assurance EVCA-1. So, GitHub said, we're not paying for a GoDaddy EV certificate that because they're so expensive. How, what, they're thousands gonna, of dollars, right? Yes. Yeah. We're going to go to DigiCert and get their high assurance EV, and I'm going to do that too. How much um, is but, their high assurance EV? I don't remember, but it looked like something I was willing to do not, where not it's just like not going to happen yeah. over with VeriSign or any of these other big guys. And if you know, did, if, all we need is it to be a... a a legitimate good certificate authority that is present in everyone's browser. And if Facebook is using them, then they're present in everybody's browser. <laughs> All right. So I just love this certificate patrol. It is very cool. I, I want to just bring it up again to recommend it to uh, you know the, the one user of our podcast who hasn't yet installed this um, th to recommend that he, do, he, that he or she do so because uh, it's cool information that you just get you know easily. Um, also in miscellany, uh, I ran across, I just wanted to mention for those interested in Bitcoins, uh, bitcoincharts.com is amazing. 
it is tracking all of the various Bitcoin exchanges showing exchange rates and volumes and charts and so forth. So anyone who's been playing with Bitcoin, I know we have a lot of listeners who do because I see a lot of tweet feedback about Bitcoin stuff. Bitcoin charts. Dot com. So, and, and it, what's interesting, and I'm not surprised, is that some of these guys are not giving you full value for your Bitcoin. Uh-huh. So, so they've marked those in red. Yep. Uh, and then green are the ones that are giving you a good value. And then there's some that are just kind of like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> $42? What? Yeah, it's like, oh, I don't know. Here's one that's uh, bidding $651 and asking $890. Oh, that's uh-huh. got to be that's a mis- that's all messed up. But anyway, yeah, that's, this is uh, good. That's this a low great. traffic exchange yeah, yeah, or zero traffic. Zero exchange. traffic. But everybody okay, now, uses Mt. Gox. I mean, that's kind of the definitive yep, one. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. Okay. Now I've got something that just rocked my world in the last week. That old timers like you and me, Leo, will certainly understand. Yes, we will. And this is the news for the for the first time ever. The in North America. In the United States, our power line frequency is going to be allowed to drift away from 60 hertz. Yeah, I don't know if it's the first time ever. I think, but, you know, by the way, we covered this on the radio show. Okay. Somebody called in and I said, huh? And, yeah. um, and uh, it, it, then I heard from some power line engineers who okay. said that, that in the early days, it was you know routine that it would drift. Well, but, and then we put would... in a lot of very expensive equipment not so long ago, a few decades ago, to make sure it was locked into 60 hertz. And, well, and what used to happen that I really loved was you could actually see, if you had a really accurate reference, you could see during hot summer days... That your clocks, that your clocks that were driven by the power line right. would fall a little bit behind, right? Because the speed of the generators in the dams busy. would slow down, or in the, the in the nuclear power plants would slow down because of the load that they were pushing. But then at, at night or on cooler days, they would they were literally tracking how many cycles they were behind. And so they would then run the generators faster in order to make up for that slump time so that your net, your, your net frequency over a large period of time was still locked at exactly 60 hertz. But, but what's apparently going to happen now is they actually are going to allow it to drift off. It's expensive to keep it locked. Yes, um, so so the, the, the blurb that I found, the best one I found said, the North American Electric Reliability Corp. runs the nation's interlocking web of transmission lines and power plants. A, a June 14th company presentation spelled out the potential effects of the change. East Coast clocks may run as much as 20 minutes fast, fast, over a year. But West Coast clocks are only likely to be off by eight minutes. In Texas, <laughs> in Texas, it's only expected uh, it's it's only an an expected speed up of two minutes. But so we should, in the worst case, it's not a whole. It's a few seconds a day. Yes, it's not a huge drift. It's not all but of a sudden you're going to be late for work. Correct, and this is also only clocks that actually get their time reference from the power line now you know your your typical 
cheesy $7 LED clock that you just, you know, you plug it in and then the, the, it blinks 12 until you set it. Those are probably, they may not have a crystal reference because it's, it's so easy to simply count the cycles of AC coming in. That's incredibly inexpensive. So very inexpensive clocks do this. It may very well be, though, that, that better clocks are not trusting the AC line. Certainly a clock that runs at either 50 or 60 hertz, it would have its own internal time reference, right. not using the AC line. So anyway, I mean, that's it's just, not expensive to put a crystal in there. I mean, it's, it's sense. Not any longer. True. Yeah. True. Uh, and, and NIST was at great uh, uh, pains to point out that their cesium clock will not be affected by this. <laughs> that the atomic clock is still precise. Wait, it's not plugged into the wall, Leo? No. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if it were? Oh, what happened to the cesium clock? Oh, someone tripped over the cord. I just um, hate when that happens. So this, this actually uh, this started in 1930 uh, that they, they uh, kind of... Uh, tried to uh, keep this up, so it's interesting that this is a big change. But you know, boy, if you know your and your comp- people ask about my computer or your computer, your computer is not going to be affected by this. They all use well, crystals. No, yeah, the 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 our, our computers definitely use an on motherboard time reference. And now that we're tied to the internet, we're also pinging one of the internet time servers and being synchronized all the time. In fact, I just downloaded a really cool app for the pad, and I think it's available for the iPhone. I, I just searched on, on, in iTunes for Atomic Clock, and I found one where the description made it extremely clear that this was exactly what I wanted, and that is when you start it, it shows you that it is synchronizing, and it sends, it sends out pings to time servers, and you can configure it for which time server to use in order to lock itself down to they they use some strange word I haven't seen. It's like femtosecond or something, but it, it wasn't it wasn't that. It's <laughs> a very it's like, small okay, second, folks. I'm sorry, but you, you're you're not that accurate over the internet because well, got and that's and, and you know maybe NNTP would be a good topic someday for uh, for a security now. But I've always thought you know you're not going to be that accurate. You could still be a second or two off due to latency from the internet, right? You always will be, yes. Well, so, not a second or two, but, but you know, down in the low milliseconds. Depending. I mean, it depends on your internet connection. Yep. And so we have this kind of notion that, oh, this is exactly right. In fact, it might not be. It well, might be half a second th- off. There are clever things you can do, though, Leo, because, for example, if we assume that packet transit time is symmetrical, when you send your, your query off, you see how long it takes to get the response. And so you're able to assume... That if we have symmetrical transit times, that the actual response was sent half of the time that it took the round trip. Right. So you're able to null. You can get pretty close, in other words. Yes. You're able to null uh, the delay out that way. But people with satellite links. Sorry, folks. Yeah. (laughs) I would would very much like to uh, do a little bit on NNTP. And somebody in the chat room has given us a wonderful link, time.is. Uh, which is a, a, a web-based atomic clock, but I don't believe, I mean, unless I'm misunderstanding it, it's getting the time, as most web-based clocks do, from the JavaScript from my system, but in fact it's getting the time. It's, it's giving me a, cl- a server-side time uh, accurately uh, right. up, uh, you know, updated, I would hope. Yeah, we hope. Yeah, okay, otherwise, now, what's the point? <laughs> my, my last bit of miscellany, I, I tweeted... 
because when my buddy told me about this, I thought it was one of the just the cleverest and coolest things I'd heard of in a long time. He his uh, smoke alarm died. And he's got really high vaulted ceilings, and he actually wanted me to come over to spot him while he was, you know, like at the top of a scaffolding ladder, leaning out, trying to get to it. You know, and I was like, "Well, I'm right in the middle of coding right now, Mark. I, you know, you know, uh, you know, if get somebody else to hold, I'll see you in a couple days. So you know, just if you die, I'll I'll smell it and I'll let you. It was beeping at 4 a.m. It's like, okay, I know that's annoying. Oh, I do hate that. We did a whole twit with Kevin Rose. He was at his parents' house, and the smoke alarm beeped the whole show. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, get this. They are now available. I know that Lowe's carries them. I think First Alert is the brand. You can silence and test the smoke alarm with any IR remote control. What? Isn't that the coolest, cleverest thing, Leo? I need that. I, it is so cool. Wait a minute. So, because okay, every time I cook bacon, yes, exactly. my alarm goes off. Whoever put a smoke alarm like three feet from the stove, not no. thinking. So no. you're saying I can aim an infrared remote at it and it would turn it off? Yes. Isn't that fantastic? We all have one, and it uses and you know an IR remote. Is I a, go is and a, I'm waving something at the thing like this. <laughs> You know, it, it, uh, the, the, the remotes generate a, a modulated IR, yeah. so it's not going to confuse that with, like, the heat from a real flame. Okay. That's, that won't confuse it. Yeah. And so it sees a fast modulated IR coming in, and it, it takes that as a command. And so you do it three times in order to test the battery, and it goes, doot, 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 and it's like, okay, cool. So you don't have to climb up and push the button or throw a, you know, a Wait, a wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. Is this a feature built into smoke alarms? New smoke alarms. Oh, no, so my old ones may not work, but the new oh, no, ones no, 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 this. absolutely not. Got this it. is, this is, I had never heard of this before. So, so this they is a, have built in an IR receptor that you can go blink, 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 and it's, a, it's great. You don't have to press the button to test it. You don't have to climb up and Love so it. forth. And if it goes off, mostly, as you said, you know, smoky bacon, right. you know, and it's like annoying. You just, you don't have to go get, you know, get on your ladder or your stepping stool. You just use any IR remote, which I just think that's the clever award of the year. <laughs> I'm going to buy these. I got to find I them. I just, I love it. Yeah. And brilliant. Uh, I did have Scott Stone tweeted. He's at S Stone's uh, 68. He tweeted, except my kids have an IR controlled train set that sets off the smart alarm, the smoke alarms test mode. Not so brilliant. Huge <laughs> fan of SN. Keep it up. <laughs> So, okay, it's not without its side effects, but still just extremely clever. Very, very, very good. From the Twitterverse, I've got three little quickies. Um, Infoholic, uh, Steve Remington tweeted regarding uh, SN307. He said, the Gmail plus label email tip. Many sites incorrectly implement email validation and do not allow the plus character in email addresses. And similarly... Rule Rot, R-U-L-E-R-O-T, tweeted, uh, his name is Andrew. He said, I used, to pa- I used to pad my Gmail address, too, but too many websites think that plus is invalid. Others have taken it and then choked on the back end. So I wanted to, to share that caveat about the tip that we talked about last week of using the plus in order to create, you know, sort of a, an account plus a label 
for the purpose of creating unique email addresses uh, that, that it, because it's done so infrequently it looks it's very clear that many email systems don't handle it properly which is way annoying hmm. and JB TechSec uh, whose name is Jack Brennan tweeted just finished zero day not a masterpiece but very enjoyable I finished it in two days thanks for the tip now this is my segue to tell you about a book that I'm at 66% of, and I have been having so much fun on my stair climber with this book. Uh, when I was talking about Zero Day, uh, which, of course, our friend Mark Rosanovich wrote and recommended it, and I've had a ton of great feedback. Some other people tweeted, if, you'd like, if you liked that, you're going to love this. The book is Damon. Oh, yeah. Leo. Oh, you're way behind. Leo. And there's a sequel to it, too. You've I know, gotta have to read and that I am too. so glad because I don't want this to ever end. I know. It's excellent. Most books, you sort of get into it, and it plateaus. You yeah. sort of, especially Hamilton, it's like, oh, my, how, how long more do I have of this? You know, I mean, it's good, and you're enjoying it, but if I were to draw a curve, I would say you kind of ramp up, and then you plateau. This darn book it keeps getting better yeah i mean it gets better and better i it's like as i'm reading it's like oh my goodness oh my god i mean this author does everything you dream he might do with this concept oh my god it is good so it is a masterpiece oh yeah and i had to recommend it for if i mean this it's so it's d-a-e-m-o-n um, which of course is the the from the Unix world the 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 name for processes that run in the background and just do work for you. I'm I'm not going to spoil this for anybody, but no one who listens to this podcast could possibly read this and not and not just be blown away. It is fantastic. It's uh, Daniel Suarez. By the way, I met him uh, oh. about a year ago. Great guy, and this is his first novel. Oh, that's the amazing uh, story about this. He uh, he created this, and by the way, here's a nice little autograph uh, from Daniel. I really cherish. Um, he created the, this novel while he was uh, working as a programmer. He obviously, as you read it, you know. Uh, has a real understanding of computer technology. This is a very just as Mark Rasinovich does. It's an intelligent book. Oh, it, it's just it keeps getting better. <laughs> it just I like it's like oh my god, how can this keep and, getting better? And this so is the like sequel a, to it, Freedom TM, and you got to get that too because it, it's it, like a ramp. It just yeah. you just keep going it's up <laughs> higher and higher. It's like oh my god, we miss not anyway. telling you about this book. We all talked about it uh, uh, when it came out. We interviewed him, and actually he's oh. going to come on our triangulation show soon because he's been writing his new book, uh, which is about predator drones. Oh, and he's going to come on and talk it. about that. I don't care. That I'll read anything this guy ever writes. It is brilliant, just, isn't he? It's spectacular. Yeah. yeah. Good writer. So and, highest, and highest guy. recommendation. I'm fine. I'm, I'm late to the party, Leo. But anybody else who is too, <laughs> well, a just, lot of people. Just, you know, hit pause and, and buy this thing. <laughs> Actually, you know, my, um, oh. my 16-year-old son loved it too. There's enough action and it really kept his attention. And, there, and the computer science in it is very well done. Yes, yeah. and massively multiplayer gaming comes in, and internet, and all the tech is correct. 
Oh, I'm I'm stunned. And you have to uh, read the sequel because it ends in the middle. <laughs> oh, believe me, I'm just I'm so glad that this isn't ending at sixty six percent because it's like knowing that there's another one yeah. of these. Oh, goodness. and it comes. It, by the way, we'll talk when you finish the second one. It has a yeah, great good. ending. And, oh, uh, good. Yeah. Good, You're going to love it. Good. <laughs> uh, a real quick short note from a, uh, a Spinrite devotee, Harvey A. Russ. He wrote, okay, this was an emergency. My TiVo puked. The weak knees tech support page said that the problem with my TiVo looks like a disk failure and that I had to give up. Well, I have the fix. Spinrite 6. Yes, I resurrected the pair of discs in my Series 2 TiVo using the handy-dandy, trusty Spinrite. Steve, thank you for your knowledge in hard drives and technology in general. I've been using Spinrite since version 1.0. You're a faithful follower in technology. That's great. Not an easy thing to do because you have to pull it out of the uh, TiVo and put it in the PC. Yeah. But it works. And if you've, you've got all your shows on there and you're... Otherwise, SOL, as they say, right. and uh, Spinrite is, comes to the rescue. Actually, that's the second recommendation on there because Weeknees is the place to go if you're a TiVo user. I love Weeknees.com, yep. W-E-A-K-K-N-E-E-S.com. They're very nice people. Yeah, they are. And in them. fact, they have a nice 48-bit Linux kernel that I was able to use for my wow. old Series 1 TiVos in order to get them to get out of that 32-bit uh, barrier. Yes, two Ks. W actually both work. That's interesting. So one or two Ks, depending on how you want to spell it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but two Ks does work. Good for them. Yeah, they're smart. Yeah, because uh, I, you know, there's two ways to spell it, isn't there? Uh, Steve, we're going to take a break. Are you ready to do a Q and A? Because I Let's have some. It. We got about uh, 25 minutes before I we uh, wrap this. Thing I think up. I judged just exactly the right length. You did a good job. But before we go to there, I want to go to here. Netflix.com. I'll do this quickly because I know you all know about you all know about Netflix. Of course, I hope so. It's the greatest way to get DVDs by mail in as little as one day's business day. But lately, the the thing that wows me is this watch instantly feature, which lets me stream movies and TV shows right to my iPad. I know, Steve, you love it for that reason. Uh, also to your Mac or your PC. There's an iPhone app. There even uh, is an app for Android. It doesn't work on all Android phones. but works on many of them. And thousands, I don't know exactly how many, but maybe tens of thousands of, of shows and, and movies on here. So you're never... Out of stuff to watch instantly. Iron Man 2 just came out uh, on on here. Oh, oh, I started it. Oh, shucks. I guess we're going to have to watch it now. You see, this is the beauty of it. Look how quickly it starts up. Actually, I'm going to get an, a silver light warning, I think, on here because I think this Mac. Nope. So Netflix is loading the movie. It buffers it a little bit. Uh, it gives you uh, what I like about it. It gives you high def. Uh, if you've got the bandwidth to support it, it just works great. And now we're in full screen mode. We're watching a movie. We're watching a movie. Netflix.com slash twit. You can try this feature out for 30 days absolutely free. And by, by the way, um, if, if you're already a member, this would work for family and friends and grandma and grandpa and cousin Al, who's not that sophisticated. If they've got uh, you know, internet access and they've got um, you know, an iPad, an iPhone, an iPod Touch with Wi-Fi, a, a Mac or a PC, they can start watching Netflix movies right now for seven ninety nine a month, but free for the first thirty days. So, so tell them the URL; it'll help us out. Netflix 
com slash twit. We do thank them so much for their support of our show. Now, Steve Gibson, I have questions, and I presume you wouldn't have given me these questions if you didn't have answers. <laughs> or sometimes they're just great tidbits. In fact, this first one is incredibly clever. Good. It goes back to that read-only USB thing we've been talking about mm-hmm. for a while. Marco Gouveia Silva and Funchal, Madeira Islands, Portugal, says, Hi, Stephen Lee. I've been a listener of security now almost since the beginning, and I also listen to some other Twitch shows. Thank you. Love what you do. Hope you don't stop. My apologies for my Portuguese, Marco. I think I found a great way of making a USB thumb drive read-only. But I need your opinion and blessing, Steve. Uh, what if you used a CD file system on a USB stick? ISO 9660, which is what CDs uh, use, is read-only by design. Yes, very clever. He says, I'm a happy, almost only Linux user. And I've, I've read this on a magazine called Linux Format. So here goes the way of doing this on Linux. But, of course, you could do it with Windows and Mac with the right software. Use some CD burning software. He says K3B, Nero, so on, to create a CD ISO image containing the files you want to have on the key as read-only. You can also do this from the command line if you are a Linux fan with MKISOFS, make ISO file system, dash R, dash capital V, disk name, dash O, some files dot ISO, file one, file two, etc. Disk name, of course, is a volume ID. It'll be given and used when mounting the device. You can use, you can list as many files as you want on the command line, or, of course, you can use uh, globbing or even specify a whole directory. But it's easier just to use some CD-burning software to do this. Now... You've got to burn the ISO. This is the tricky part. You, it's yep. easy to make the ISO. You might even have an ISO if you downloaded a Linux uh, distribution, for instance. Now you can burn the ISO to a USB stick. You start with the disk stick not mounted, so unmounted, and then run DD. Use DD if equals the path to the file uh, to the ISO file. Um, the that's the IF the in file. The out file is. The device, the 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 uh, the USB device. So if you're an, a Linux user, you'll know it'll be in you know slash dev slash SD and some number. Um, block size two K. I think that that you could change, but anyway, um, you do have to use the base device, obviously, and not a root partition on it, not a mount partition. You want it to be unmounted, and it's going to erase the entire thumb drive. DD uh, is on Windows. If you Google search, you can find it. But, of course, it's on Mac and and Linux uh, operating systems. Wait for the drive's LED to stop flashing. That's important. Unplug and then plug it in again. Your OS will will mount it as a read-only device. The files on this file system will be read-only. But here's the question for you, Steve. Is this good enough? Is this safe? Does it get the Gibson seal of approval? Thanks for the podcast. I've learned so much from it. Keep up the good work, Mark. I what think do you say? it is incredibly clever. Um, it's it's absolutely the case that the OS would present to any software running in the operating system a a read only device. So any standard file writing calls would would absolutely fail if you tried to to alter the contents. The OS would say this is not. This is not writable and fail the call. It is the only vulnerability is that obviously, technically, it's still a writable device. So if so, someone could create you, you, you could have theoretical software that would unmount it 
and and access it in raw mode and then go out and you know alter the this um the cd um image in order to incorporate additional files but no such thing exists so I just think this is really cool and and clever. It's um, it's so because it's there's a theoretical way you could get around it. It's like eh, you know having a write protect switch that you have verified on a USB stick is going to be safer, but doing both would give you lots of protection because then you would be safe even if, for example, you forgot to have the switch set the other direction. So I just, this was such a clever idea. I wanted to share it with our listeners. It's like, you know, this is thinking outside the box and, uh, and a, really a great solution. And yes, I mean, the fact is it would stop all malware from installing itself. So malware can't override these settings. It can't say, oh, ignore the read-only. Correct, because the, 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 um, the image itself is, is closed right. and the file system has no provision for like dynamically relocating, marking files, de- you know, deleted and all that. None of that exists in, in, that, in that 9660 file system. It's just a way of providing a static fixed image, which is what makes it so, clu- uh, so, so cool, such a great solution. Yeah. Question two, Glenn Edward in Nottingham, Maryland. He wonders whether Adobe's Shockwave player is really necessary. Times are tight, as they say, and I can't keep adding RAM sticks to this old PC of mine or afford a new one with a lot more RAM capacity. So I like to keep my PC's installed software to a useful minimum. And I keep seeing both Adobe Shockwave and Flash listed as things I must have. But I wonder if that's not just a load of Adobe baloney and that Shockwave is just about as useful as having the real player plugin installed. I've wondered this myself because everything uses Flash, but Shockwave is an old technology that I don't, it's rarely used anymore. Uh, I'm sure there's some business or educational applications that need Shockwave, but how likely is it the average internet user is going to run into it? So I'm hoping you'll tell me not very and I can eliminate the Shockwave plugin and not keep it updated. Glenn Edward of Nottingham, Maryland. Not very, and eliminate the Shockwave plugin and not keep it updated. Yeah, and then if you need exactly it, right. it will tell you. Yes, if if you need it, then you can decide if it's worth it. But I mean, and, and, and that's a, exactly the same advice we have for our, any of our low utilization things like real media. Although Elaine sometimes gives me a little poke and says, "Steve, you realize I'm transcribing the podcast." With a real media player, really? It's the yeah. She, I think she has foot pedals. She's so or something. Old-fashioned. And so, well, no, I mean it's like the only thing she's really up with, up to date with things. But it's the only thing that does what she needs. She can't find anything else otherwise. So, and of course, I don't think she's out surfing in strange dark corners of the internet <laughs> gonna, and downloading well, and, and Java. Delicious. That's another example. We were talking about the uh, Facebook plugin, which does use yeah. Java, apparently only on the Mac. It looks like an EXE on the, on the Windows machines. Um, but we've said before, don't have Java on there unless you need Java. Java 7's coming out tomorrow. And uh, a lot of people might say, oh, quick, and go out and get it. No, if you don't need it, don't have it. Yes. And so Shockwave was a, a, an earlier technology. Once upon a time, there were a lot of games. Remember the bowling, the, the elves or something, yeah, elf, elf bowling. bowling or whatever? Yeah, yeah. You know, those sorts of things were done in Shockwave a decade ago. And I'm told some gaming sites still have Shockwave. But if you're not a person who knows you need it, get rid of it. Absolutely. And as you said, Leo, if you go to a site that says, oh, you need to have Shockwave in order to see this, you know, this postcard from your aunt or something it's like well okay aunt i'll i know you love me i'm not going to load shockwave 
And, and yeah, you can decide. I can live without it. Yeah. Yes. Is it is it so horrendously buggy that it probably is not safe to? Uh, it's yeah. I mean, it's it. it's. I would say it's probably worse than Flash because it's getting less attention, and anything with less attention is you know has got you know gremlins swirled right. away in it. it oh, incidentally, now SDA one. <laughs> who is apparently a USB key plugged into our chat room, uh, says that the Skype on the PC Facebook uses EXE loader, but it is for a jar file, which, of course, is possible. So it may still need Java. Um, I would expect it would. Why would they write uh, an EXE file for Windows and use Java on the Mac? You might as well just write one right. Java and put it everywhere. Right. Um, so, yeah, you probably will need Java. There are a lot of reasons to have Java uh, on there. Um, Greg in Florida reminds us of a simple iPhone, iPad password improvement he says steve your recent comment about iphone passwords reminded me of a great way to help secure an ios device i'm the only person i know that uses it but if you turn off simple passcode in the settings instead of the numerical keypad which only you know is four digits or whatever you get a full qwerty keyboard to enter the password even if you still use a short code the increased character set makes guessing much much harder it also makes shoulder surfing a bit more difficult as well so in other words don't use that pneumatic keypad which only gives you four digits uh use the full keyboard yeah and you know I, 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 a number of people had mentioned this before i just kept forgetting to to relay it i wanted to make sure that our listeners knew that that option existed you turn on you turn off simple passcode and then you've got the full keyboard so you're not limited to four characters you can do anything you want to there if you really want to crank up the security on you know accessing your iphone or ipad awesome i actually have the feature turned on that says if somebody guesses 10 times incorrectly yep. it erases it yep and i feel that's sufficient as well yes because that means someone has commandeered your shots. device yeah. yes and and we're you know every every time we dock our, our device is backed up into our local machine so we can replace it and get and reload it or if they say oh I'm sorry I tried I thought I was you know tried to play a game on your iPad while you were away and ah. it, it seems to have wiped it out well then you just dock it and, yeah, and bring it back a, to the condition it was so, yeah iCloud will make that even better uh, moving right along Steve in Columbus Ohio. Asking, why is all personal data not encrypted on a company server? After reading all these security hacks in the news and almost being a victim in the uh, Mt. Gox breach, the Bitcoin uh, exchange breach, one question keeps coming to mind. Why is it companies only feel the need to hash or encrypt passwords and financial data, if even that, and not also encrypt other data like email, address, phone, etc.? Even data as simple as my first and last name, you know, why not hash that? I understand that financial uh, and passwords seem the most important, but shouldn't all my information be protected? Is there a technical limitation to hashing that much data? Is it laziness? I look forward to your response. A quick note about my earlier almost compromised remark. I, about one minute after receiving the email about the Mt. Gox hack, I was simultaneously knocked out of my Gmail accounts, desktop, laptop, and Android, and was forced to change my password because of suspicious activity. I was not compromised because I had Google's two-step verification per turned on. And for safety, I immediately generated and inserted a new password with LastPass. Thanks for and security that, now. Yeah, that reminds me um, that one of the advantages, uh, we were talking about the OAuth and the idea of using a, a secure site to authenticate yourself. Well, if you, if you use, for example, Google um, two-step verification, then you, you get that additional level of of safety 
when you authenticate to the site that you're being referred to. So that's handy also. But as for Steve's question as to why all of our data is not being kept encrypted, it's just because they don't have to. There's, there's not I like mean, a, a huge hardship to do it. It is zero, Leo. It is, it is the developers, the programmers caring to do so. And to the degree that, that these systems are purchased from a central location, um, you know, from like, you know, a, a kit of some sort, it's just, it's criminal that the kits haven't done this because then everybody else who used those kits or those turnkey solutions would automatically have everything encrypted. So this is another sign of it just being the early days still. It's certainly, at some point, there will probably be legislation which, which requires the encryption. I, I don't know how else it's, it's going to happen, except that it just, it's forced, you're, you're forced to do it. And the penalty of ever having unencrypted data escape, which would demonstrate that you were in violation of the law, would then be very high. But you know, nothing prevents it. Encryption takes no time uh, no overhead. I mean, there's just there's there's no excuse for not having our data encrypted. Um, it does need to be encryption rather than hashing. We talk about hashing passwords because we never need to unhash them. In fact, the way, the way we verify them is that we we hash the original one and keep the result. Then we hash what the user gives us later when they want to come back and see if they match. But in the case of things like first name, last name, address, and so forth, where we actually want to get that, well, then there there we need to encrypt that so that we can decrypt it later. But it absolutely should be stored in encrypted form so that when, you know, these database files are downloaded, all they get is pseudo-random noise. I mean, just nothing. Absolutely. Just like LastPass does. Uh, Moving along... And this is uh, from Lewis Barnett at W Host The Muse. W. Oh, oh, <laughs> you got to read it. <laughs> you got to read it carefully. Whosthemuse.com. Who's the muse? Whosthemuse.com. I'm thinking security, so I go W Host, and then I'm stuck. <laughs> he. Muse.com. As a geek who is already running a newer version of Windows, I really would like to know, what do you plan to do after support for Windows XP expires? Which is not instantly. I mean, we got a few years. As I listen to episode 306 of Security Now, I know there are still 1,020 days left. But have you given any thought as to what you'll do after that, Mr. Steve Gibson? I know you dislike adopting new technologies. Boy, he really thinks you're, a, you're really a curmudgeon. But will Windows 7 be advanced enough in three years for you. Plus, what was that Star Trek noise in the background? I love the show and keep it up. I mentioned the Star Trek noise noise in the background. Yes, you did. Now, that was episode 306. I just checked my Win 7 screen. Not the one I'm in front of, but the one where Skype is running. And it's showing me... I I got that quick. Remember that there's a, um, there's a, a desktop widget which shows you on Windows 7 the length of time before Windows XP... Uh, security updates expire, and it is now 106, 1,006 days. So, not surprisingly, 14 days fewer than two weeks ago when it was 10,020 days. So, as you say, Leo, I've got near, I've got almost three years, or two and a half, I guess, something like that, to go. 
Um, and Lewis, that'll be fine. I, I have seven running on a tablet. I have seven running uh, to my side. I I would do my Bitcoin mining on seven. So I'm you know I'm not using it. It's around. I'm sort of getting the feel of it, and 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 I'm so happy. I can I will have been able to skip over the Vista nightmare. So yeah, I think two and a half years more. The Win seven ought to be ready for me by then. I think the timing will work just right. <laughs> oh, I actually and like Windows Star Trek 7. Noises. I'm using it now, by the way. <laughs> Star Trek uh, noises. Yes. Many people tweeted about where it was that I found those high-quality Star Trek sounds uh-huh. that had, like, the engine noise removed from the background and everything. Right. And so I found them again, and just for the podcast, I tweeted the URL because it's too long for me to say it verbally. So if anyone wants to find the link to this website where they, where they purified and just beautiful Star Trek sounds from all the various variations of the Star Trek series, you know, Next Generation and the original and what was the Floating Island one? <laughs> You're Can't asking remember. the wrong guy. Uh, I'm not a big Deep Star Spa- Wars fan. D- Deep Space Nine. I'm just Deep teasing. Space Nine. <laughs> oh, yeah, Deep um, Space Nine. Yeah. That was with the Ferengi. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, um, by the way, uh, all on Netflix, every one of them. Netflix streaming oh, all of the, all all the episodes, all yes. the old episodes, including the the original series, Enterprise, Deep Space Nine. They're all there. Okay. So anyway, twitter.com slash sggrc. That will show you my tweet timeline and the last tweet there. I don't tweet that often, so you'll still not have to dig very far, is the URL to this site that's got really, really good Star Trek uh, cleaned up, pure noises. And I think that was the communication termination noise, which I've got as my BlackBerry sound for incoming email. So it always does raise eyebrows when, when, that, when, when the phone does that. It's like, okay, Gibson. Oh, this is Star Wars. Yeah, uh, Luke. Actually, I'm going to read two together. So, uh, two two questions in a row, and then then your answer. Luke, aka Kelly Carter, on Theresian Guild cookies. Uh, and oh, it's Wow, an avid Wow player in Nashville, Tennessee, and Azeroth. That's the realm in the World of Warcraft he plays on, apparently. Wonders about Blizzard's newer authentication. Steve, I have to say I had a Gibsonian response the other day. Uh, I, as you might have guessed, love the game World of Warcraft. I loved how they used a football or an app to generate a code required to log in. I didn't know they were doing that second, uh, second factor authentication. But recently, Blizzard, the company that makes Warcraft, changed how they do their security. They no longer require a code every time you log in. Uh, and they tell us they are doing something on their end to validate that I am who I claim to be. But the thing that brought my alert level up is they're not telling us what it is they're using. We can't validate that they're doing the right thing or if they forgot something or, you know, if it's uh, only an imaginary security. Is there any way you could check in on this for those of us that spend time in Azeroth? By the way, Steve, what class race spec would you like to play? For the Horde! I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't play World of Warcraft, do you? I never. You have a life. Have even, I've never even seen it. No. <laughs> I played it for quite a bit, and then I realized I was losing my life. So now I play Tiny Tower on the iPad. Um, so do you know what they're doing? Well, let's go to number two. Second oh, question. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I warned you. 
but I didn't I didn't heed my warning. Scott Clark in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, also wonders and worries. I'm an avid fan of the work you do producing Security Now. I'm a guild leader on the Skywall server of World of Warcraft and am acutely aware of the need for security to protect my account. I use a Blizzard Authenticator, which is a modified Vasco security token. Blizzard has long checked location data and locked accounts that were accessed from unexpected locations. Recently, without warning, Blizzard implemented a change to their security policies. If they are confident in your identity when you log in, they're they're not going to require you to enter your authenticator number, bypassing this measure entirely. Blizzard has not released details on how this identity check takes place, although presumably it's based on some mix of location, MAC address, and or stored certificate. There's been considerable debate on the forums as to whether this represents a weakening or a strengthening of our account security. Blizzard has not been forthcoming with details, and they do not provide an opt-out which would force use of the authenticator. Personally, I prefer the security of knowing that the authenticator is required for all logins versus the convenience of not entering the code each time. What I'd like to know is, by asking for the authenticator code on each login, is this not strictly weaker than requiring it? Uh, you understood what I mean. Is, yeah. it, is it weaker not to ask for the yeah. code? Okay, so uh, here's what happened. Um, Due to the insane popularity globally of World of Warcraft years ago, it became a real problem that users were using weak passwords. They were getting their World of Warcraft accounts hacked yeah, right now. lots left. of cheating and stuff, too. I mean, this is a big problem. Yeah, it's a huge problem. And people, as you no doubt, Leo, know, build up tremendous value in their identities, their online identities in World of Warcraft. So getting hacked, I mean, is can be hugely expensive and traumatic for the game player because some bad guy gets in and, like, sells all your gold or transfers it somewhere else or does something. I'm not quite sure on the details. But you I said know that as that, if you're a WoW player yourself. Yeah, well, I did some research. So, so what happened was Blizzard decided they were going to come up to speed with the with multi-factor authentication. And they added, some years ago, the Blizzard Authenticator, which is exactly identical to our little, wonderful little football that we've talked about for, like, logging into PayPal and eBay and so forth, where you press the button and you get the six digits and it's changing every 30 seconds and so on. What then ensued was malware, which would perform an effective man-in-the-middle attack. Uh, it was called MUCore, or emcore.dll, which, which, which World of Warcraft players were getting themselves infected with. So because Blizzard was requiring authentication every time, every time you logged in, this mcore.dll would intercept in real time your username and password and current display from your authenticator and instantly ship it off to somewhere bad where it would be immediately used to authenticate. You would be given the, the news that there was a problem with your authentication while the other person was in real time logging into your World of Warcraft account and emptying it. You know, selling off your gold and jewels and, you know, who knows what mischief they were getting up to. So 
so what happened was Blizzard did uh, developed a hybrid approach. They backed off of requiring the authenticator every time, um, only needing it in instances where they suspect you may not be where they have some reason to believe you you have been using WoW from before. There are as as um, as our um, writers here and and podcast listeners suggest there are a number of ways that um, World of Warcraft the the Blizzard people um, could know where you are. You know you're using the same IP address that you have used for the last five weeks. Um, they let's could say what get, if they? I wish they'd tell us because then we could uh, judge it. But let's yes. say they do it. Um, Kind of as LastPass does it, where uh, the first time you log in, you need the authenticator. Once you do that, they put a certificate uh, on your system, yes. and then they check for the certificate. That would be pretty good. The problem is you could the certificate could get lifted, too. Um, I mean, well, first of all, if something's bad in your system, it's pretty much game over. If you've got anything high value on your system while you've got malware present, then you're in trouble. So, so, so the cert is, is one thing. They could also, for example, read the MAC address from your adapter, as, as was suggested. They, they, they don't receive the MAC address over your connection. They get your IP address over your connection, but they could read the MAC address from your adapter, which is, is globally unique, although subject to change. Um, or, you know, just store a cookie of some sort on your system. I mean, anything that, that, that they do to say, this looks like a machine that we have reason to believe. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to associate with, with a machine. The Apparently, if you no- change IP address, that, that is sufficient to trigger a re-authentication. I would, I would use IP address as the first That's thing that, that, yeah. I, that I looked at. But, you, you know, all hard drives have serial numbers. So you can get the serial number off the hard drive. Well, and we and, know with that, what was that uh, super cookie thing? We know there's ways to uh, identify to on. almost uniquely, in fact, if not 100% uniquely, any computer. Right. With with stuff you can easily get over the internet. So so I think I think the hybrid approach makes more sense if you're going to have a high incidence of malware which is compromising your authentication by performing a man in the middle attack which is in fact what happened. All right. And so, fine. in other words, uh, I, I think you know they've got to balance this with a lot of normal users who don't want to get a security token. Um, but who also Actually, it's, re- it's required. Passwords. It's required, Leo. Right. It was six, they were selling it at cost. It was six dollars, and if you were going to continue using World of Warcraft, you had to get one. Wow. If the problem was that bad. It shows you uh, how long it's been since I've logged on because I didn't know. And, that. and so I do think, though, that, that would have stopped other- me. By the way, right there, I would said, "Ah, screw it. I'll do some other game." The the upside is to to using you know a multi you know multi vector authentication is that then you're not requiring someone to use the authenticator every single time right. every single time they log on many users appreciated it because they they felt the danger within the community but the fact is you know locking on your ip address is going to be pretty good that would require a much more sophisticated attack you know you using your machine as a proxy in order to loop through and let have the bad guys do something remotely so that would be I'm not like, you know, you couldn't write that, but so far it doesn't seem to exist. Uh, our last question, I'm sorry to say. Patrick, an old soul in Laramie, Wyoming, 
brings us our wrap-up philosophical discussion topic of the week. <laughs> Are we losing the forest, he asks, for the trees? Stephen Leo, last week's topic about the growing importance and role of identity over the Internet made me wonder, which is a good thing, are we losing the forest for the trees? Maybe I'm different than the generations coming after me, but I prefer to hang out with my friends face-to-face rather than a video chat room. I prefer to go to the bank and talk to the tellers. Well, good luck doing that. I doubt you'll be able to do that much longer. Yeah. Rather than go online, although I do that as well. I prefer to shit. These guys sound like an old fart now. I prefer to shit in front of a slide projector. (laughs) Do they still make those? With my family than to flip through someone's Facebook album. While I realize that the internet is very powerful and it enables things that we would never have imagined a decade ago, I just have to wonder if it's really such a good idea to move everything to the internet, which is the direction it seems we're headed. Coming from the perspective of a kid growing up with computers and technology... I feel like perhaps we all need to take a step back and really ask ourselves, is this really the best direction to head in? Am I just starting to sound like my grandpa, or is there any legitimacy to what I'm saying? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Thanks for everything you do. Look forward to many years to come. Patrick. Well, Leo, I love texting. I'm just, I'm, I love my phone, and I've, I've got my, you know, a network of friends that I'm, I'm in constant contact with, and Twitter has been a boon for really for connecting me to our security now listenership in a way that I hadn't been before so that um, you know I don't miss things going on and I'm able to deliver I think a better podcast every week as a consequence of it and of course you know Wikipedia and I mean and the net itself I'm as an information worker I am hugely empowered by this and I was just uh, hearing some conversations some dialogue the other day, maybe it was on a Twit show, talking about how Facebook – oh, it's on the radio this morning – how Facebook has really revolutionized relationships. One of the, it was that they were, they were enumerating the regrets people have, like the top five regrets people have in their life. And one of them was that they had lost contact with their friends. And the, the people, the two DJs were bantering back and forth, and they said, you know, I'm – like I've reconnected with all these friends that I had lost touch with thanks to Facebook, which I think is many people's experience. So um, certainly there's a depersonalization going on, but boy, I think on balance, uh, it's just a boon. It's communication. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there is an interesting backlash going on among um, even young people whom I, I, I gather Patrick is, since he said he grew up with uh, computers, yeah. that, um, uh, you know, in fact, we had this discussion, I can't remember what show it was on, that bookstores, were, and maybe it was This Week in Google, which is coming up next, that bookstores aren't going to go away, they're just going to change, because we do need uh, some way of getting together in real life, in person, face-to-face. But see, you and I... <laughs> Are a rare case. We prefer to stay at home <laughs> and 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 you know do our computer thing. We're introverts, yeah. and uh, but th- but we're a minority. I think most people uh, do prefer to to get together. Uh, oh, Patrick's in our chat room. He says he's twenty one, so he's a kid, even though he sounds like oh. an old guy. <laughs> Um, I think it's. I think in fact, my my daughter's been saying this. She's nineteen, and she's been saying this for some time. Wait, she's, say what? She says my in my generation. There is a move away from the Internet. Wow. 
that there that it, you know, and it's of course probably a pendulum, but 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 uh, she says that I that she believes, and she's I think one of them that face to face is better, and there is this there is a move afoot among these younger people in that direction. I wonder though if that's a move back from absolute over insanity saturation. Well, that's so what she, I mean by a pendulum. I think it yeah. swings. Well, but um, I mean like 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 there was a tendency maybe to get completely on the net in a way that even you and I haven't yet. Where like it was a, like obsessive internet use. And so for 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 Abby, she's backing away to like a more what would you, you and know, I would consider normal. Even exactly, yeah. more even keel sort of use. Yeah, well, and then there's Jaron Lanier, who, of course, was a pioneer in virtual reality, who now is choose all things technological. There was just an article about him, uh, I want to say the New York Times, and he's written a book saying, you are not your gadget. Huh. And and he's really lobbying hard for turning uh, his, uh, our backs on technology in, in at least some respects. And don't forget Cliff Stoll, who was an astronomer, computer scientist, wrote uh, a great book about hacking, who has also become an anti-technologist. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, we, we see tweet-ups now, as, uh, as uh, Hishmash is pointing out in the chat room, where people who know each other from Twitter meet specifically so that there's some face-to-face. Yeah, and in fact, I have amazing relationships with people in GRC's news groups whom I've never met, never, probably never will. But, you know, I'm sort of curious about them. And I've wondered, boy, you know, if I were to host a big gathering, what would that be like? That would be weird to take us <laughs> out of our virtual realm. I'll tell you, I think this is why there's something deeply satisfying about South by Southwest uh, and other conferences like that. When I went to food camp with 300 other people, when you meet somebody that you only know on Twitter, you know their handle. It is there's something deeply satisfying about fine about saying hello, hey, you're yeah. at you know, uh, and, yeah. and saying oh, Mickey, oh, it's nice to meet you. And I think so. I think there's a certain value to that. And I just think that some of us have gotten so in, in, in digitized that we forgot. So digitized. (laughs) So, you know, it's not replacing the real world. It's just supplementing. And I'm with you. I mean, the the value is huge. Oh, goodness, yes. Yeah. And you're kind of a late convert, frankly. I had to talk you into Twitter. Yeah. (laughs) I just passed, just uh, two days ago, 22,000. Or was it, no, it was was yesterday, 22,000 followers. So That's great. uh, uh, I'm enjoying it. And it's super useful for me. So thank you, everybody, for for sending me your thoughts oh, over... that's funny. I met Patrick. He Twitter? was here last week for the Security Now episode. <laughs> He's telling me, oh, yeah, I remember you, Patrick. That's cool. very funny. Steve Gibson is on the Twitter as at SGGRC. GRC stands for Gibson Research Corporation. That's his website, grc.com. So this all makes sense if you start to understand that. SGGRC is his Twitter handle. GRC.com is the place to go if you'd like to know uh, more about all the things he talks about. Of course, all the shows are there, 16 kilobit versions, uh, transcriptions, so you can read along as Steve talks. Um, It's all there. At, S- at uh, grc.com and don't forget of course Spinrite the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility it's a must have if you have a hard drive you have to have Spinrite we uh, do this show every Wednesday 11 a.m. Pacific 2 p.m. Eastern 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv we do invite you to join us then there's a party can you hear the party going on in the other room yeah I heard something I guess we are having a co- I guess they are meeting face to face now <laughs> the kids today and they just love it. You know what the problem is? We have too many darn people. We have 18 people jammed in that little room next door. So everybody needs to run out and buy a brick right now so that we can move 
to the new Twit Brickhouse. Steve, we've got two more Security Now episodes from here, and then we'll be in the new facility. No kidding. <laughs> July 24th is our move date, and I know you're coming up for the party August 21st. I look forward to that. Yep. If you haven't yet bought a brick, bricks.twit.tv, that helps us build the studio, but also puts you on the wall of honor right there in the entryway. And it's just, it's shaping up so cool. It's really, really fun. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Steve, we'll see you soon at grc.com and uh, next Wednesday for Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Take care. Security Now.